Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haida Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hi, Heather. I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Yes, yes, I'm well. Well, I mean, thank you so much for sort of slotting me into your, you know, very busy schedule. And if if, if anyone looks at your profile, you're kind of like you've done pretty much everything within the sort of traditional medical slash entrepreneur slash clinical leadership kind of roles um you know i mean what's the next step so to speak you know <laughs> absolutely yeah it definitely has been a a bit a busy couple of years and um yes yeah i'm, I'm slowly kind of uh, over the last i'd say four or five years developing a bit more of a niche but you're right it's definitely been quite divergent from a very traditional kind of clinical path to a, 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 a real kind of shift a pivot in over the last five or six years into uh, a lot of the unknown and navigating that unknown and uncertainty and then re- kind of pivoting reflecting thinking am I moving in the right direction uh, has been quite uh, it's been great but it's been challenging and then and, and interesting and you learn a lot through each of these different iterations but we, I could definitely talk you talk you through all of that yeah yeah for me yeah yeah Yeah. for for me it was very much the latter stages of it was well if we if we go back like the traditional bit was uh, medical school you know you you reflect on those choices now as you get older I've got nephews and nieces around that age now and you look and think this is a pretty big decision to make at 17 and as a teenager to extrapolate what a career and what your life might be like as an adult how you feel about things that energize you what you care about how you envisage working life to be is so difficult um and I look back at those choices I still think it was a for me it was definitely the right choice because broadly speaking what was the original choice you know what was the original reason as to go in yeah yeah for me broadly the original bit of it was three or four things that really ticked the box for me one I quite liked being able to help people so I thought at that age I could see longevity in a career meant a bit more than just financial stuff um I thought when I spoke to people and I had work experience I could see what really drives them or at least one thing that I think despite working really hard is the job satisfaction they're getting you don't hear that much now from doctors but when I was like shadowing doctors a lot of the doctors said look it is tough it is hard when I'd ask them, well, why have you done this? They said, look, a big reason is job satisfaction. So even early on, one of the key things I used to think about as a teenager was longevity in a career, which sounds like an unusual thing to think about. But perhaps I was thinking about my career quite early on and thought, okay, I need to be able to be motivated to continue to do something. So helping people is one thing. I enjoyed science. So that was another thing. So I thought I want to work in some kind of problem-solving science-type career but I wasn't, didn't really see myself as a traditional academic. I like that human element. I like the idea of being able to connect with people and people of different backgrounds. And at that stage as a teenager, one of the jobs I had was telesales for a double glazing company. And one of the things I really liked about that was the exposure to like the whole spectrum of society and how you've got the same message, but you need to tailor this to whoever it might be on the other side of the phone. So, I like that human communication side of things as well. So it was really those three things. And, and, and actually, probably the fourth, it, it felt quite certain. Although my parents didn't explicitly encourage me to, to do medicine or anything, there was a feeling that, you know, they've pumped quite a lot of effort and money and uh, into you. And I suppose from their perspective, a little bit spills over the importance of having a steady career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you did um, you did your schooling in in Bradford and, you know, Bradford is, you know, uh, I'm sort of extrapolating, you know, lots of Asian families there, first generation, they've just come in, they're working really hard. 
And the first thing they think about is education for my kids and just giving them the best start uh, possible. So you get that sense that you've got to give something back to the parents and the community. Yeah, and, and you don't, if you know, if it, if it felt a bit limited, I didn't really know about these other careers. Um, you know, both my parents were working class, mum was working in a factory, my dad was a bus driver. That exposure to kind of what, what are different careers? What is consulting? What is an entrepreneur? I didn't have any real exposure to that. For me, the pillars of the community at that time, somebody who aspired to be was perhaps your local GP. That was, uh, and, and that was the kind of limited exposure we had. And the Asian community love talking about doctors, engineers and accountants. So in my mind, these were the rock stars of like the, the aspirational careers to have. And, and, you know, why, why do you think about science per se? What was it about science? I think I just enjoyed that. that for me, I, I was always interested in the way things work. Mm. So I quite enjoyed understanding and learning about how do things work. And I was drawn to science from an early age because perhaps I, I didn't see myself much as a bookworm. So the science was a subject other than PE where you, you could get some practical stuff done. So I used to quite like the, I think the practical things lured me in to begin with. Then I just, it was more, as I grew, grew older, I think actually I quite enjoy the scientific challenge of it now. And then as, as I got a little bit older, it was then the convergence of that scientific challenge with being able to make a difference to humanity, potentially, very naive at the time, but, you know, having some kind of impact is, to make, you know, positive impact on society. Um, but yeah, the initial draw for me to, for, for science was one, I felt like I was good at it, two, the problem solving bit, and three, I was led in by the practical bits. So I thought, get away from reading for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a bit of a shock when, you know, I kind of finished A-levels and then I went to medical school and then you had to do a lot more reading. And I thought, oh my God, it's like, it, it was, yeah, sort of reading, but then I, I don't know, the training that we had wasn't very much clinically centered, although we 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 did do sort of OSCEs, you know, from from the third year. Um, I mean, I trained in the 90s, so you know it is quite sort of old-fashioned. Um, but the book work continued throughout the whole course, which I did really like. And then by the time I got into the clinical, I wasn't really myself because I was programmed to do the book work way of exactly. medicine which kind of stuck with me probably for about, I don't know, probably 10 years until I realized yeah. that actually, you know, I can inject my own character and my own person into, into how I do medicine. Um, yeah, and that was always difficult as well, in being, understanding how much you could inject your own character into things like that. I always felt perhaps early on a bit like an imposter, like I'm not sure at medical school, if I quite belong there, there were not a huge number of people from a diverse background uh, and the same social class. And sometimes, you, you know, that on reflection, I, I think about that side of things as well. Like how much of your whole self did I bring in in those early years to myself? Probably not really. I was just trying to understand, navigate and, and think, you know, how how should I fit in rather than just bringing my, my whole self. But, but the medical school bit, was when it started changing because I felt I always had a bit of a creative streak like throughout school university uh, throughout like school I had small businesses I would buy and sell mobile phones I would, I would do that kind of thing so I had I would quite like the, the creative out, outlet I had when I went into medical school it felt very very prescriptive and that was okay for the first few years because I was learning but it there was no I just had this feeling in the back of my mind actually I'm not sure if there's and this lacking this kind of creativeness for me. And then that that got worse when I finished, because when I finished university and we started working, that's when it when I it was immersed in the working culture. And it felt that when you take a step back, there's so many other things that were going around in my life with respect to advances in technology, advances in consumer goods, advances in the way we were interacting with very traditional services like banking or shopping everything was becoming so much more consumer centric, but healthcare was this thing that 
first I learned in a very prescriptive fashion and I was practicing in a very prescriptive fashion and I would look and I just started getting interested in things like well what are the upstream causes of some of this why are we doing things like this is there a better way to do stuff and GP was a prime example like th this was 2012 and irrespective of your healthcare condition you would call in a single window one hour window 8 a.m or 7 30 a.m to 8 30 a.m to try to secure a gp appointment a very blunt triaging tool and then you'd be thrown to the back of the queue that could be as long as four weeks and i thought in many respects this hasn't evolved from the days of hippocrates how on earth could we be practicing medicine like this but i can jump in an uber and have preferences like you know don't talk to me I like it quiet, I like it warm. And it and, and the other thing that was interesting. Oh, that's nice. That, I never knew you can do that. I sound very antisocial. Yeah, it was and it just and the other thing I felt as particularly in GP was it felt everything felt reactive. And people were changing attitudes, attitudes were changing, consumer like patients' agency was changing. They want they had things available to them now, like wearable technology, information on the internet, everything was becoming very transparent and they wanted to act to optimize themselves. So they, they weren't just coming to the GP to, when they were sick. They wanted to say, actually, I want, I'm worried about this or I want to optimize my health or I'd like a screen, a proactive screen. A lot of these things we didn't offer in the NHS. And that's when I felt a bit stressed with it because I thought we do a huge amount of training it feels like a lot of it is reactive. It's very stretched. The culture's not great. Everyone seems a bit miserable and the patients are not very happy. And it was very deflating because at the end of it, you think oh, I've done all of this training and my punters are miserable <laughs> and I'm, my colleagues are a bit miserable. And that's what, that was really prompted me to kind of think about upskilling myself in, in a bit more uh, of the bits I felt I needed. So that was mostly this the system how does the system work um and so what i did is i i, I thought okay i want to broaden my education so i did two further degrees i did a, a master's in health policy planning and financing at the london school of economics and then i a couple of years after that completed an mba i mean why you know why that why that particular course yeah i think for me it was um so when i when i was at that stage looking through all of these issues i thought one of the issues that's puzzling me is how does this all work from a funding point of view? How does it all work with respect to what's, uh, we have these very emotive talk, conversations in healthcare with doctors and, and managers and so forth, and people saying that's not right, or privatization is not right, or funding is not right, or people should, should pay a fiver to see the GP. But it felt like a lot of these conversations were emotive and ill-informed. So I thought, I, I don't feel like I could make a, an informed, uh, I didn't have an informed opinion. I wanted to understand what is outcomes-based pricing? What are the implications of user charges? How should a healthcare be funded? I wanted to have a more sophisticated understanding of this argument. And, and I, my experience of this argument was just very superficial. It was just privatization is wrong or the NHS is great. It was a dogma, essentially. You know, you, you, know, you had dogmas in your head and, and you know, not the underlying structure of, of 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 why these systems arose in the first place exactly that and for me i thought the best perhaps way to do this is take a year out and have a bit more of an immersive experience but it was challenging i didn't i don't think about things too deeply so I, I did, I, which is I, a good I, thing i guess you know which is a good yeah. thing i guess then you just procrastinate and you know which is called research and and it just stays in your head doesn't it rather than you know out yeah, in the world was, so yeah I did and, and it fit quite well with my life at the time I got married that year so I thought actually it might be a nice time to take a year out of the GP training and um, complete like an out of program experience and th that was really interesting um, one it just gave me a, a break from the kind of everyday pressure of what I was experiencing GP and I needed to be re-energized I needed to have a bit of passion in there and, and I needed these questions answering. So that was a really good experience. And then alongside that, I, I 
Could you could you walk us through that that course and sort of yeah. what was it like and 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 who you met and and how you changed as a person? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think the the course was really interesting. So the it, the course is called Health Policy Planning and Financing, and it's quite unique because it's uh, offered by the London School of Economics, and then the public health modules are offered by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and that was one of the biggest draws for me. So, so London School of Hygiene is great for the public health side of things and the economic side of things is really like amazing at the London School of Economics. So there I learned about healthcare economics and financing healthcare. And all of this was very, very new. I also studied US health policy, which was an optional module for me. Um, and there I met people from all different types of backgrounds, management consultants, people from big pharma, uh, people who were interested in this space and were pivoting from a different career. And a couple of other doctors actually from public health backgrounds and uh, many international physicians as well. People who are really aspiring to move into policy or, or government or public health. And I was not sure what I wanted to do, uh, but I just wanted to learn. Um, and it was really interesting. I think that the, the teaching at the LSE was uh, amazing. The way they could really break down simple concepts and, and then teach you things and, and give you that that one-on-one -on -one tutelage in small tutorial groups was something I hadn't experienced before at medical school you know we were sitting in lectures of three four hundred people and occasionally you'd have tutorials and my other sort of diff my other issue with that those tutorials was it was often delivered by a clinician who it wasn't really their full-time job so that it was haphazard they may or may not come in often they were ill-prepared so they'd come in not really prepared for those things and then ask you the questions how does the heart work what is the you know atrial fibrillation it's not it's a lazy way to teach and it's teaching through humiliation and i hated those things at medical school and that the whole like hierarchy and and there was no thought into it whereas here my experience was very different people their full-time job the tutors and those guys had been trained to teach and deliver that teaching. And they took it very seriously. And feedback was given. You had essays to prepare every single week and you had feedback. So you actually learned. So the learning, learning was different. It felt much more focused and less just mass volume and churning out facts. Uh, so it changed me a lot because it, with respect to the style of learning, I, I, don't, do, I don't do well in, in um, the medical style exams, which is 200, Q and A's and you've got two hours and for each one you've got 30 seconds to quickly tick a box and you know my undergraduate performance wasn't amazing and I used to often think oh maybe it's just I, I'm not great at uh, you know maybe I'm just not that bright in some of these subjects but it's funny because the the my strengths were around having time to put my own thoughts and creativity and write essays so actually at the London School of Economics, I've got a distinction in, in financing healthcare and healthcare economics. And last week I was awarded an academic prize from Cambridge coming amongst the top of the year for my dissertation. So, so some of those things I would say to medical students listening, don't be discouraged if your grades are, grades are not amazing. It's, you know, different styles work for different people. And unfortunately, medical school and those exams are, in the UK anyway, are very different the q a stuff isn't for everyone so don't yeah be yeah i mean i'm sure the sort of system's a bit different now and 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 uh, you know they've taken that into account you know there's sort of the whole immersive way of um of teaching and different styles of teaching well was there anything in the course that 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 didn't work for you and you know wasn't quite uh, right for you I think some of the policy stuff I thought would be more interesting than it was. <laughs> so I think some of the policy, healthcare policy modules, I had thought they'd be a lot more interesting. Um, and I'm sure there were, but for me, I was more, uh, going through that course, I realized I was more interested in health economics and the peculiarities around economics when it meets healthcare, um, rather than like policy per se, which um, it felt like a much more, lengthy process to get somewhere so I, the economics and the financing side really triggered my sparked my interest well it's I that mean, sort of you know sort of original taran sort of del boy kind of genes it, within you 
That's right. Yeah, exactly. How do you get the most bang for your buck? And how can we, what is, you know, yeah, it, it added a bit of like a rigor to that bellboyness where, where it's like how, me thinking. Bellboy about... with a, they, they'll boy with a stethoscope. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, but it was tough because after that, I had to go back to GPP training for a year. And, you know, you do feel like there's a whole sunk cost. Like this was my final year. And most people at that stage were like, oh, I'm finally done. I can crack on with my life now and, you know, get through these exams and that's it. And for me, it was a bit more impending doom thinking, well, after this, I'm done. Like I'm only, I'm only 30. Like, am I going to be able to do this job till 67? And, I, you know, you're switching back from all these. So at the, at the same time, I did my master's. I thought I wanted to apply some of this knowledge immediately. So I concurrently served as a, a chief exec of a small charity, but it was a great opportunity because it, it was quite a senior role, but it was a small charity called Health Nation, but it allowed me to have so much exposure to other stuff and develop other skills and directly apply some of the health economics and policy stuff I'm doing and working with in the borough of New, New, Newham uh, on obesity. But then when I went back into GP, it was a very sobering experience. It was like, right, this is very prescriptive. Crack on with this. Don't really care what you have to say. Get through this, this, this. And I was, I, and small things started annoying me, like things didn't work. You know, you'd go into your room and some of your equipment wouldn't work. The way you'd have to do processes just seemed just a waste of time. I thought this is not increasingly I became more and more annoyed at those things as particularly since I'd experienced this newfound freedom so I got through it but then immediately and I was thinking look the sensible part of my mind was thinking finally you've got a stable job crack on you, your jump in salary is quite significant from registrar to consult to a, a, a qualified GP you know it could be as much as five or six times your income so you should be really excited. Like your expenses haven't gone up in a month, but your salary has gone up fivefold. So I remember moving back to London and I, I quite quickly found a job just by luck in a really nice area, Notting Hill, great people, great team. End of the first month, I got my first paycheck five or six times more than, because as a locum GP, six times more than what I earned as a registrar. I just felt depressed. I thought, yeah, your dull boys was, was was saying to you, "What are you doing here, mate? Come on, there's some big watches somewhere else." <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it's not the money, but 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 as you said, it's it's the creative you, isn't it? You know, that's yeah. that's the thing that you can't really uh, look. Most people are not creatives, um, you know, and you know that's a fact. Um, but then that sort of creative aspect is sort of hidden somewhere. Uh, for a lot of people and yeah and you know that that's where you got to keep finding and sort of looking for it but when you, when you do find it you, you can't get rid of it and it's a problem yeah yeah and I think traditionally when we talk about background I think you know for me anyway my experience is growing up in, in, in a very traditional kind of Asian background was tend to be risk averse yeah, yeah. like the high risk behavior it wasn't explicitly kind of said let's not do that but it just wasn't, I suppose, if I reflect on it now, it wasn't something that we were definitely encouraged to do that. It was it generally more encouraged to pick this, you know, and I can understand why it's not a criticism. I get, like, you know, families, parents wanted their children to have a stable career. So you felt, I don't know, you, you had to be quite, it felt like I had to get through all of that and make sure I had GP before I could indulge with the creative things, or knowing that at least I have a, a safety net now. So I felt more brave basically after I finished my GP training because I thought, well, worst case scenario, you know, I've still got a proper job. Yeah, yeah. And 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 how long did it take you to 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 decide that no, I've 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 got to follow my creative spark? <laughs> oh, really? Wow. So immediately uh, it was a busy month. So I moved back in and uh, my wife was doing her training. Um, in at guys and Thomas's and she's on a training program so she was very busy and I just kind of finished and and within a month I was googling and searching for all sorts of things thinking okay how, how do I get out of this uh, what can I do uh, and um, I, went, I went to a conference with a uh, medic footprint 
Yeah, yeah. So that, I went to that one. I think it was back in 2015 or 16. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's it. I, I went to that conference and I um I just I, that and a particular me. person started singing, which kind of was a bit difficult for me to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I uh <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I think uh, it was a but going to that kind of having that experience, I it um, is quite eye opening. I thought, wow, there's people who are who have been way more audacious than I've been, and they're very brave, and they've just gone for it, and they haven't thought about it too much. And I thought, you know what, I've now feel liberated somewhat with my risk. So long and short, but I met the uh, now the co- the CEO of Medicsport, but at the time. Uh, he, uh, Zubair, who is setting up uh, a telehealth company, and we we got we it was a small advert, um, and we got talking. And very early on, uh, he could see that actually some of my experience and my passion was very closely aligned with what he was doing and trying to set up. Uh, soon enough, by December, we were working together and set up, uh, um, and I joined him as the chief medical officer. At, uh, Medicsport and became a co-founder of Medicsport, which was a telehealth company based in the pharmacy using wearable tech. And that was an incredible experience because Zubair at the time was doing his MBA. Um, we ended up winning the incubator award. So I was able to join him um, on campus where our office was based at Medicsport. And I almost got like a little bit of an MBA for free and, and learned about and got exposed to this whole other side of business stuff. So traditionally I was our skills were meant to complement each other. I was meant to bring the clinical medical director type role to the business, whereas he would be bringing the commercial acumen. Uh, but I soon realized actually my passion wasn't the clinical stuff. It was much more about propositions and how do we take this beyond what we were doing. Um, it was a great opportunity. We, we grew the business at the, at the time we were in 50 locations. And within a year, 14 months we'd secured um, seed funding for a million and valued the company around 5 million and at that stage I, for me it was quite tough because you're not drawing a salary and um, I had the option either I can stay and see how this pans out over four years or reduce my stake in the business and exit after the first year and for me it was more the latter I thought given where I am in life I'm three degrees down I need to earn some money. I've just moved back to London. I've got what I want out of the, you know, my experience was great, but I, that level of risk was, I was a bit uncomfortable with. So I, we, we, uh, we kind of uh, parted ways very amicably. Uh, Zabes continued to do really well in the business and I was headhunted to join uh, Dr. Care Anywhere as their clinical director. So it really helped to transition my career very quickly. So at a very young age, I was kind of managing 100 doctors and four clinical managers and effectively one of the most senior clinical people in that organization. And it was the clinical director of New Ventures. So I was able to indulge in the stuff I really wanted to do, which was propositions, new ventures and, and, and partnerships and less on the really on the medical director's front. Um, and that was a terrific opportunity. I had a really great mentors there. Um, David Ravish, the CEO, was amazing, gave me a lot of autonomy. I was able to do loads of work. Um, and it was a really interesting experience going from a small startup to a bigger bigger organization. But what are the um, sort of biggest differences in that? What 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 what's yeah, the I think when, uh, take when home you, messages? Yeah, I think the take-home messages is like of course the, the smaller startups are exciting and nimble, and you can get things done really quickly. Um, but you have to you know, with scaling up, all sorts of challenges come into place. Like you need the leadership evolves very differently. It's much less transactional. You can't micromanage groups and teams of people. And the the reliance on cross-functional teams is much more important. So in a small team, it's easy. But if you're working in larger teams, it's really important. You have good working relationships with product, tech, sales. Um, and that's quite difficult to manage with clinicians because clinicians you know they feel they're quite important and they've come from a background where it's very hierarchical and to challenge that and have a flat structure it, i found quite challenging like 
being able to manage clinicians and just say, actually, you know, as a GP, as a consultant, you have a lot of autonomy and you can get away with it. I say get away with it, but like culturally, you it's kind of, the, it's very doctor clinician centric in the NHS. People will pander around the consultant. That can't happen in these organizations. They just don't work. And if it's all decisions and thinking is all clinical, you know, doctor centric, it, it won't work. So the bigger organizations, you have to be mindful, I think, of the softer skills. Um, and as a clinician, you generally you've got great access to those things you've already developed. But when you're too, in my experience, anyway, when you were a senior clinician or senior medical person, there were some of the harder ones to manage because, for example, the, some of them didn't take kindly to somebody 15 years their junior being their boss effectively. That, that was quite challenging. Um, how, how, how did you overcome that shift, you know, going from sort of doctor-centered to, to um, sort of organization-centered and, and so-called, you know, soft skill-centered? Yeah, that was incredibly challenging. Um, but I think it, for me, what helped me was thinking back to what I actually enjoyed. Like when I mentioned my first job in telesales, what I enjoyed was being able to speak to the whole spectrum of society how do you tap into somebody it was i think it was those skills that stood me in strong stead as a clinician and then later in life as this so as a clinician i felt it a bit easier to connect because i i was interested in that side of things anyway but how do you and how do you flex and connect up to you know your colleagues your patients and how do you how do you empathize and try to resonate with what they care about and these are the things that I think as a clinician, you definitely have to develop, particularly early on, because you're working as a young clinician in very emotionally charged environments. People are dying, you're on a crash call, uh, your emotions could be all over the place. And then you're, spe you're speaking to your, your junior doctor might be in tears, uh, your registrar might be in tears. And this empathy, this being able to connect with people, I think for clinicians, they do develop that quite well. And so for me, it was about translating those learnings in, in, in a different environment. So trying to then just be more personable, trying to first just connect with people before you get into the roles and responsibilities, overemphasize some of the softer things. Let's go out for a meal. Let's go out for some team building. Just understand who I am, what I care about, who are you, what do you care about? And I think if you can get those things in place early on it makes the working relationship a lot easier but what often happens is you skip over that you expedite that and you're straight into right this is your target this is what you need to do then it doesn't work so 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 being more conscious of of, of the whole human connection that that we're kind of naturals really uh you know being clinicians and being people of of um i mean i use the word the healing profession Maybe that's a bit archaic, but um, uh, yeah, uh, just being more mindful that, that you have those abilities. Yeah, and being more reflective on yourself, I think understanding as well, like how you're coming across, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps the way you're saying things, perhaps the way you're framing things, or if something's gone wrong, I you need to be reflective of that. Is there a better way to do that? Mm -hmm. Is the other person behaving like this because they feel unsupported? Is there things that you can do to help support, you know, self-reflection is really important. And it's, you know, sometimes it reduced to a bit of a lip service thing, but if you can really implement it, you can really reflect on how you're coming across. I think that's quite useful. And, and, and what's your practice of sort of self-reflection? What, what works for you the best? I, I quite like journaling. Um, I find that quite easy to, and I don't do it with a pen, actually just do it on um, notes. Um, I do that quite regularly and it helps me to decant some of the thoughts that perhaps I didn't think I was thinking about. So it's almost just like purging all of my thoughts and thinking about how I feel about that. And then perhaps some of the unconscious thoughts that I had, you challenge them and think, oh, you know, I can see from all this, you're actually a little bit annoyed about this, or you keep whinging about this, or you're unhappy about this, or this is what's energizing you and that can help you to reflect and then make decisions moving forward yeah and you know i mean it's a continuous process because you know the unconscious is um yeah it's kind of unlimited really 
yeah and I, I felt sort of that I've tried to do that I um and that's what helped me make that next decision about like doing a, an MBA I think when I was reflecting about what is it that I'm missing what do I want to develop further I did feel I want to formalize some of the Del Boy skills and um and I also uh, move into that space a bit more so shifting from being a clinician to it's nice that I am a clinician but I'm actually a wellness executive or a healthcare exec who happens to be a clinician not a clinician first and that transition was was really important because increasingly the work I was doing was less about being a clinician it was very useful that I had a clinical lens because I could cut through the fat on opportunities I could see what was viable I could understand with my public health and health economics lens what might work um, and with my creative lens I could indulge but my clinical mind would keep me honest and think actually that's not possible uh, or that's not realistic um, but often with clinical director medical director jobs it's very medically focused with respect to outcomes and audits and it's less about creative opportunities and propositions and, and business propositions um, so that's why I chose to, to study for the MBA um, and that was a like a phenomenal opportunity again to really develop both hard skills but surprisingly so much of the soft skills uh, which I find are often people gloss over but they're the ones I think that are probably more useful because hard stuff you can always upskill in but soft needs a lot of discipline and self-reflection on how you come across would you mean by soft skills in terms of the MBA? What, what sort of things do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think there's lots of stuff in, in the MBA about leadership, different styles of leadership, different styles of communication, uh, different styles of like, how do you um, self-reflect and how do you come across and how do you dissect problems within teams, problems within yourself, problems within individuals and give you a framework to deal with some of those problems. Or, or, or identify those and even putting a team together what should you be thinking about do you have a toolkit in your back pocket to understand okay you need this type of person but you need to understand how each individual's work so that they can complement each other or you understand how to connect with them energize them and lead them and it was interesting because leadership in, in as a doctor is very transactional to begin with it here's your jobs list i'll see you at the end of the day then that gets a bit wider. You're like, here's a job list to three or four SHOs and a registrar. And then it gets a bit wider. But actually that transactional type relationship it, in a larger organization like where I'm working now, especially when you're working across teams, it needs to shift to a transformational type leadership. And how do you do that? How do you inspire people to work so that their values and their mission is aligned with yours so they're motivated to crack on with the work rather than you just checking all the time are you doing this are you doing that the jobs list just goes out of the window and that level of leadership is really hard to to master and of course there's no single silver bullet but the MBA it opened my eyes up to some of the toolkits but a lot of self-awareness for me as well, like what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? How do I come across? I mean, do, do, do you think um, yeah, the MBA should be more of a sort of a mainstream, um, you, know, you know, like part of the BSc that we get sort of intercalated and so on? Do you, do you think that should come into mainstream medical training? Um, it's a tough one because I think there's so many different uh, bits for different clinicians uh, and some people do really well in academic clinicians you don't yeah. why would they need an MBA if like if you're doing a PhD and you're you're doing all of that but I think those clinicians who have assumed some form of leadership roles within an organization it's exceptionally useful because unfortunately what happens is senior clinicians may get promoted to those roles but they'll lack those things in their toolkit so they might be very academic but leading an organization, of course, it requires the gravitas of the appropriate clinician so they can have the authenticity to be there, but they may not be the best leader. They may not even have that in their toolkit. So for me, it would definitely be a, a, an advantage to offer some kind of MBA to students if they want to do it, but also to sponsor professionals, consultants to do an executive MBA. Like my MBA was done by the CEO of um, Geyser St. Thomas's Trust, Ian Abs. And that's a good example of a senior clinician 
and even on my MBA, there was um, the medical director of Nuffield doing this. There was about five other clinicians, and some of these early thinking organisations have invested in their staff to do this. And if they did it more widely for those clinicians in leadership roles, I think it'd be very useful. And 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 was it more sort of? Uh, I mean, you know, you did mention that there were soft soft skills and sort of hard skills and and. What kind of sort of percentage would, would you say, you know, um, was the course? Yeah, I think probably 30% was soft skills yeah. and the, the rest was harder, but it, it varied so much that so you had accounting and finance, corporate finance, uh, financial accounting, uh, macroeconomics, um, organizational stuff, uh, yeah. corporate governance, marketing. And it was just, I really enjoyed it because it was stuff that I hadn't learned before. And you're a bit older, a bit more mature. So you really kind of want to be there instead of like- Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, if you spoke to me about 10 years ago about these things, I would have been horrified and, and like, I'll just start throwing up, you know, with, with those things that you've just mentioned. But, you know, once you kind of put in a position where, yeah, it's just, it's just- beneficial for yourself and for the people around you and people that work under you and above you it just makes absolute sense and and yeah i that, guess um, you can you what the the useful bit is the idea is you you're immediately implementing or should be implementing what you're learning into your organization so it's a bit like i suppose if you're doing a surgical training program for you to co to go regularly somewhere to help you optimize some of the procedures you're doing so you're really struggling right now with some procedures uh, a cataract or wherever it may be and somebody's giving you time out to say guess what maybe this is the way that you should do fecal emulsification to optimize this this is the way to preserve the capsule this is the cool techniques they're using in california right now it was analogous to that where like, you have this toolkit and you could speak to other people and say i'm struggling with this they say oh yeah so it felt much more relevant as opposed to like an abstract thing, which is all the, you know, theory and you're not sure how it relates to you. It was very much relevant to what you're, you're doing day to day. And also the networking must have been awesome. It was, yeah, I, exactly. It was, it, uh, it was an excellent opportunity like to meet people, get inspired by them. Um, people from so many different countries. We have people coming in from uh, Japan, New Zealand, California, uh, Azerbaijan. Pakistan, you know, America is amazing. And they all, it was funny in Cambridge, there's a dis, probably a very high percentage of people in healthcare and life sciences. And there were at least 5% of people with a medical degree, which was interesting. So surgeons to people with big pharma to medical directors. So, so you've always got somebody you can ask questions and, um, and it's also interesting to hear from other people's perspective outside of healthcare it can be quite refreshing. And, yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, and it's and it's more fun, and and it sort of just makes things a bit more interesting, and and um, you know, I mean, I like to be startled now and then, you know, just to kind of jolt me out of my um, routine because it just makes life that that bit more less mundane. Um, have Have you thought of sort of going back to your sort of roots up up north and doing some work there, or are you sort of based where you're based? Yeah, so I'm based in London, London now um i don't think i could move for work so my work now so i transitioned after the mba into the health the health and wellness bit so now working for holland and barrett um in their new function which is a science and business function uh, so work dictates very much like where i am going to be and my wife's a, a london-based consultant so it's it's pretty impossible for us to probably go back oh i don't, I don't miss the weather but the people were great <laughs> yeah Good yeah idea. Yeah, I mean, it's good in both places, you know, I have no qualms about, you know, either places and, and um, um, but yeah, just sort of thinking about, I mean, I went back to Iraq and sort of did, did my work there, which was quite interesting. And, you know, that, that was a real eye opener. And um, I'll probably go back there again, uh, in a different guise, given that, you know, I've learned what I've learned uh, over the last um, decade, I guess. Um, and that's a great opportunity, isn't it, to go back there and, yeah, I mean, I'd love to do that at some stage where, you know, all the wealth of the skills you've developed and the experience you have, to yeah. be able to deploy that in somewhere like Iraq, it must be so satisfying because 
you can well to a certain extent i mean you know i mean it's the same problem as sort of the gp because you you know, gp world because you know what what can be done and the potential yeah. that that can have but 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 you know um your your wrists are shackled so to speak and you can't do anything no matter how you know influential or you know however much soft skills you have and sort of all these other things yeah. and you know e e even financial clout and so on uh for some reason the system is just too um too authoritarian and and there's yeah. no way of changing it unless there's some massive revolution you know change um but yeah. hey you know it's it's yeah i mean there are things that you know if i do go back i do totally different and and i'm sure the results will be different uh but then obviously the problems will be different as well so um you know sort of keeps going around in circles um so yeah i mean you're in sort of a major retail uh uh corporation now um i know you know Every, <laughs> everything gets recorded and everything sort of put down sort of uh in the uh in the online world forever so to speak yeah um and you know that's that's part and parcel of uh, the roles that we uh undertake um how has that been sort of uh because it's been like seven eight months now since since yeah. it started yeah it's it, you know it's been an amazing journey it's, it's definitely different and for me, broadly speaking, at my experience, the first third of it was very prescriptive clinical stuff mm. where, you know, I just went through the program, got CCT'd. The next four or five years were high growth startups. I, I did a Medexport, uh, Care Anywhere. I worked for a couple of other uh, high growth startups and I worked at Medbell. So all C kind of VC backed uh, as chief commercial officer at Medbell. So all these were VC backed leadership roles. And, and I did my MBA and MSc at the same time. Then, so the next stage was, I wanted to have the convergence of these two things. I wanted somewhere where I could apply medical stuff, but still apply that business acumen and the commercial side of things that I picked up in the last five years in, in high growth startups. And I also work in, in the proactive area, so less reactive, but somewhere where it converges those two things. Um, and, and this is where Holman and Barrett had come in. So they've launched a new science and business function. And really, we're developing a number of strategies to help support consumers to make better and more informed wellness choices. And that includes a number of things like uh, we've been trialing telehealth and diagnostics and projects in the store. Um, and we've hired a number of clinicians over this last uh, couple of months. I've got a science lead and uh, a diagnostics lead. And we have a, a medical, our equivalent of a medical director, director of science as well, who's joined us from Aviva Suba, who's great. So it's really interesting that we're, that we're although we're part of this huge corporate, um, we still have a very entrepreneurial spirit. So it, it gives you that, it gives you that license to be an entrepreneur but it gives you the, a platform where you can have a profound reach. So we're in 1,600 locations across 20 countries or so. And it's really exciting. It's challenging because it's such a big organization, but the, the potential is, is really exciting. And I guess that, you know, if you fail, you fail big, which is uh, something that, that would play on my mind if I was in that <laughs> position. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. It, there's different pressures and, uh, the, yeah, my role is quite interesting. I, I work on new, and the director of new wellness partnerships and propositions. So I work uh, directly under the chief science and business officer and the scope is quite broad. So it's looking at new propositions on the horizon, what we do with potential testing and diagnostics, what we do with new ventures and whether we want to invest in these things and thinking of new propositions to, to work. So you're right, if you fail, <laughs> you feel big. And it's, it is, it, people always, ask me about the pressures of stuff and I think it's just different pressures you know when you're in a clinical role it's equally you know pressurized and it's a different type of pressure and this feels like a different type of pressure and as long as you have the same frameworks in place uh, it can help you manage those pressures or try to anyway which is for me just making sure you speak to see friends and family regularly try to commit to some kind of hobby or sport um, try to take a day off secretly is my favorite one 
every like five or six months and nobody knows you've got it otherwise you get lumped with all house jobs so if, I, if my wife knows i've got annual leave you know i've got a big list of things to do whereas if i have a secret day off every five months she, she doesn't know so it's a, it's a mini me day <laughs> wow yeah that that sounds really nice actually <laughs> i hope she doesn't listen to this podcast yeah, she and, she, and, she's uh, definitely not listening to the, uh, my podcast at the moment she's uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's had enough of me talking about work at home so. <laughs> yeah the word is out great I mean I mean we're coming towards the end of the podcast and you know I mean we could go a bit longer but you know I appreciate that that uh, you know you're a busy man and and um, your time is very scarce what what would you say to yourself you know um, that 17 year old who's doing telesales and you know he's probably excited about going into medical school what what would your three top tips be to him to that 17 year old taran yeah it would be um you know have the confidence to follow your conviction like and have the conf- and and don't worry things will actually be fine and don't forget to enjoy it so i think if you have the conviction to to follow your nose like if you think you should pivot or you think you should do things just go and do them it's always easy to just not do things and it's harder you know it's, it's easier just to get on with something do it and maybe regret it afterwards if you you know should you even regret it so have the conviction to do things uh and definitely enjoy the process because it's fleeting like there were some of the happiest and it's not all about academics just have fun as well like you know, I met my wife at medical school. I met some of my strongest friends, uh, deepest friendship groups at medical school. Like you, you, it's, you've got to have fun. You, you know, life is finite. Life is uh, fleeting. And it, it's got to be fun. It can't all be work, work, work. But those two things can align. Have conviction, have fun, and enjoy it. Absolutely. Well, it's been fun and it's been fleeting uh, talking to you, Taryn, today. Uh, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Heidi. It's great to, ha- to have you on today. I really appreciate you reaching out. I look forward to catching up again soon.